Good morning. Or not, that's fine. Good morning. Oh, that's much better. Hey, uh, so good to be with you. My name's Tim. I'm the lead pastor here. If, if, uh, if I don't look familiar to you, if it's the first time here, it's so, so good to have you here in the room. Uh, if you're watching online, welcome in. Um, yes, got a cheer for online. So just in the ranking of things that have received applause today, um, on the lowest is just good morning. The second is that there's people online and the highest has been that it's Maya's birthday. So that's, uh, that's where we're at right now. So that, that's great. So just had to get that in again, Maya. Um, hey, it is, it's really good to be together. I, uh, I'm in the, this is total kind of just side note and uh, I, it just is on the top of my brain right now. So it's just gonna come out of my mouth. And um, I'm, I'm in midway through a book uh, that is a biography uh, for a guy named uh, Eugene Peterson. Um, some of you don't know who he is. Some of you think he wrote the Bible. Some of you are really familiar with a lot of books he's written. If you're familiar with a, uh, a, a form of the Bible called The Message, uh, it's a paraphrase that Eugene wrote over a lot of years through his life because there's a lot of pages in the Bible. Um, but he uh, was a pastor and then a professor, uh, and he was a part of one church for a really long time. Um, and so much of what God did in his life as a leader and as a pastor was in the context of that church. And to, to read, and I'm only halfway through his biography, but to, to read about uh, his experience in that church, which is on the East Coast, the other side of the country, um, and as a pastor, reading a story of a pastor, it just made me deeply grateful uh, for us as a church. I'm, I, just, I just love our church. And um, when we're in, you know, been through this last year and a half and not been together very often and been online, which is a whole nother experience and kind of a change, it's massive change. And then to be together in, in little spots like this right now on Sunday has just been such a gift. So um, I just wanted to share that because it was on my brain and I probably couldn't just keep going if I didn't get that out. So um, y- y- there you go. Um, I love you guys. I enjoy um, this moment that we get to be together. The other thing is I'm really, really proud of us, and I, I think that's okay to say, um, of how we've handled being a church. I talked to a lot of other pastors in our city, um, and we all have challenges in this season, as we do regardless of what we're doing in a vocation and a calling, uh, and just really grateful that, for the story that God's writing within us through this last year and a half, and the way that we've handled things, as if you can imagine this, as controversial about coming into a room together again. We've handled it really well. So give yourselves a hand, um, and there you go. Um, Way to go for being adultish. There we go. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pick up kind of where we left off last week. We've been in a series that we've called Prayers of Renewal, Um, and this is a, it, it seems like a really dramatic and radical idea that God just kind of impressed on me this last week. And I might be catching up to you. You might already be here. You might be further along. So just give me a little bit of grace that I caught up to you. But there's this kind of really significant idea that hit me this last week. If we're going to pray for renewal, we actually have to be part of the story of renewal. If we're going to pray for renewal, see, it would be easy to pray for renewal as if we pray for uh, a new car. God, would you add into my life a new car? Prayers of renewal are completely unlike that. When we pray for renewal, what we're actually asking is that God would more closely bind our life to his life, that he would more closely align the direction and the trajectory of our experience and the way that we go through this world with what he wants and his will. That if we're gonna pray for renewal, we're going to become part of the story. Last week, if you were with us or if you listened in, we 
We looked really briefly at a man's story at the end of our time together, and I want to pick up that man's story again because his life is one of renewal. His life is one that God blessed significantly, and then he messed it up dramatically, and then God restored and renewed his life. And so we're going to look at his life again. If you've got a Bible, if you'd find your way to Psalm chapter 51, Psalm 51, we looked at it briefly last week. I want to look at it more in depth this week. If you've been paying really close attention, you know that we've been in the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer or the model prayer that Jesus teaches his first friends and followers. And we've been following it kind of sentence by sentence through that because it is a prayer of renewal for our life. And we got to forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us or forgive us our debt as we have forgiven our debtors. We looked at that last week and instead of moving on to the next sentence or the next verse, I wanna stop here just a minute and look closer at the life of David as he shares his renewal process in Psalm 51. So let's do this, let's pray together and then we'll, we'll go to Psalm 51 together. God, as we've declared already, you're good. As we have this, this gift of being able to come in a moment in our week and stop and to look at you and to listen to you and to worship you, we acknowledge you as the good and great and all-powerful, loving, merciful, gracious, forgiving God that created the entire universe. And yet, as Chris shared in what he wrote and read for us today, that you know us, you value us, and you care for each and every one of us as individuals. Would we be overcome by that today? Would we be reminded by that today? Would we be shaped by that today? And we're aware that that can't happen without you moving, Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, would you move and work in us and in this time and in this moment right now? And Jesus, would you continue to teach and direct us? Would you continue to lead us forward that our lives would become more in step with your life? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We've used this definition of renewal through this summer series, and it's, it's simply this, that renewal is a new life experienced in individuals and communities and cultures when aligned or realigned with God's presence, resulting in participation in God's kingdom purposes for the world. And so it's new life that comes in. So new life so that parts of us that are broken are restored and put back together. Parts of us that are wounded are healed. Parts of us that can't hope for the future all of a sudden have a new hope. Uh, relationships are renewed, restored, and deepened. That there's new life. There's new clarity of who we are, who God is, and what he wants to do in and through us. New life in us, in our communities and friendships and relationships and neighborhoods and then even in cultures. And that happens by only one way by being with God and hearing his voice and spending time with him, being in his presence. And then what happens is an overflow of that if we actually get to participate with what God's doing in the world. That's what renewal is. And God, as his story, as we see it throughout scripture, he does that over and over and over. And he does it in one man's life and in David's life pretty dramatically. The, the headline above Psalm 51, if you've opened to it and found it in your Bibles, it says this in most Bibles, it says this, for the director of music, so it's a song written for somebody who's gonna lead music, a Psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So David has written this Psalm and it's come right out of his own life. He's pouring out his own heart and life and it's after a completely messed up episode that was all orchestrated by David himself. 
If you're not familiar with the story, it's written in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And again, we reviewed it last week briefly, but just again, if you're not familiar with it. David's king, and he's got a great story up until then of all the things that God did in and through him, that he pursued God, honored God, worshiped God. God elevated him to king, and then he, he started to make compromises in his life. And a whole number of those led up to this, but he was supposed to be king and go out. When, king, when the army goes out to fight, he's supposed to go with the army and help lead it and fight along with it, but he stayed at home in his posh palace and looked outside one night and saw Bathsheba bathing and decides that he wants her and so tells those at his command to go get her. And we said this word that stings the ears, but we usually hear it as adultery, but in that culture we know that it would have been much, much closer to rape. And she becomes pregnant and he kills off her husband in this dramatic fashion of intrigue and lies and deceit. And then Nathan, who's David's friend, but he's also a prophet and if you didn't catch it last week, just a little side note that it's, it's helpful to have prophets as friends because they speak truth to us. And Nathan is used by God to speak truth to David. And he tells David this story. And the villain in the story is very clear. And Nathan's asked David, what would you do if you were actually living that story? What would you do with the villain? And David explained that he would, would do very bad things to him because he deserved it. And then Nathan says, you're that villain and this is what you've done and I know what you've done and God knows what you've done. And David chose to repent and turn from his sin and turn back to God. And out of that comes this song in Psalm 51. And he walks through it and it's a model for us to experience renewal in our own life because while you might not have the same story as David, we have something in common with David and that's that we've done something against God's design will. We've done something that the Bible says is, is sinful, is, is wrong. And what's so great about this psalm, this song, is that it's an invitation to each and every one of us to confess, to repent, to be restored, to be renewed and experience a new life with God. Look at it closely. It says in, in verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, now listen to this, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. D David there is, uses these really strong words, transgression, iniquity. When's the last time any of us said, I I'd like to tell you about my iniquity this week. I have this iniquity situation where I did something that was very iniquity and, and there I've, I just have a lot of iniquity and can we process it and talk? We don't talk like that. In fact, we hardly ever talk about sin, right? We talk about falling short and doing something wrong and maybe making a mistake and what we mean is really sin, but we say it in ways that make us feel a little more comfortable and it's a little more digestible. But to say I've transgressed or there's committed an iniquity, I've sinned against God. When we're really aware of how far short we fall from God's call in our life and the way that he's asked us to live and the way that he's said is best for his creation. This is what it is, it's transgression, it's iniquity, it's sin. And he uses these words of blotted out, like, like take it away, like if you look at my life and my resume, would you just remove that whole line from it and delete it? Like blot it, completely take it out, wash it away, cleanse it. And he's saying wash it thoroughly, like cleanse it thoroughly. I got to go on a, a backpacking trip for, uh, with my oldest two sons, Ethan and Max, for uh, two nights, three days, and I think we went about t 28 miles, which uh, I don't know how you calculate that, but my legs calculate that as way too far. 
and we, it was three days and it was so much fun and I was sore for a long time. Um, I wanted to look halfway decent and so I wore a shirt with a, a Columbia shirt. Um, I don't have a lot of good hiking stuff and nothing about much of my stuff says I, I know how to survive in the outdoors. And so I wanted as we were hiking and backpacking for people to know I knew what I was doing even though I didn't. So I wore a Columbia shirt with a Columbia logo on it and it was white and I wore it for the first two days. I don't know if that's a normal thing or not when you're backpacking, but the shirt wasn't built for that, I learned. And so we got home and it had, it had stains from where I had worn the, you know, the backpack for, um, for those two days. It was very hot, sweat stains all over. And uh, when we got home, all we cared about was taking showers and eating good food. And so we dumped everything in our basement and went upstairs and got clean and had food, including all of our dirty clothes. And... Um, we don't have a maid in our home, and so it sat there for a few days uh, until um, my partner, Abby, my wife, said, uh, that stuff smells, and so eventually it got cleaned. And uh, when I got it out, it ended up, um, because Abby is really gracious once the things were dried, that she actually folded um, some of the clothes. And so I came into my room one day, and there was my Columbia shirt folded at the edge of our bed. And we happened to both walk in the room at the same time, and I saw it, and she's like, yeah, that's still dirty. You ruined that. But it's folded and it's all nice and folded and it's like went through the, the washer and the dryer and yet it was stained because I had worn it too much and I hadn't washed it right away. And I don't know why else, maybe because Columbia doesn't make good enough quality clothes. I don't know. It's stained and it's ruined. It's no longer like a nice shirt to wear out. It's just meant for doing yard work and working out and wearing on backpacking trips. What I wanted to say to her or our imaginary maid, if we get one someday, is will you wash it again? Will you clean it? Will you make it white how it's supposed to be? Could just run it through again and maybe it'll get clean and it won't. If you've ever washed clothes over and over, that just doesn't happen. You have to get some kind of special chemical to actually redeem it and make it. So that shirt is done. David is saying, hey, put me through again. Run me through the cycle again because this is how I feel. What he is expressing is the human experience that all of us have had called guilt and con conviction. I've done something wrong, and I need to be fixed and cleaned and made new and rewrite my story and fix my resume. I'm feeling guilty, and when we feel guilty, guilt is something that comes into the human experience that we have all experienced most often as an attack, as something unwelcomed, as something that might even be harmful for us, and we want to reject it and get it away. And we're fortunate over the last decade or two that our society in particular and our American culture have done deep and good work on finding out what shame is and distinguishing it from guilt. And so we can identify shame better and better over time. And we want to get rid of it because it, it attaches and corrupts our own identity, which God doesn't want us to do. Nothing in this story says, I want your identity corrupted. In fact, I love you, you're valued and cared for. And so shame we need to reject, but gosh, guilt is a helpful thing for us in drawing us back to God. And yet we experience it as something that is an attack. And so like an attack, when guilt comes into our lives, we, we often treat it as that and respond to that. And the human condition of what it does in our heart and in our, our minds and the, the actual chemical reaction that we have in our brains to guilt coming in, we fight it or we, we flee or we freeze that response, that natural human response. We fight guilt by rewriting the story, by denying it and saying, that's, that's not true, that's not bad. What I did, what I chose, what I thought, what I looked at, what I said, what I spoke, that's actually not wrong. It was kind of just a mis mistake. 
It's not really an inequity, iniquity. It's not a transgression. It's not a sin. It's not against God. And so we deny it. We fight it by denying it and rewriting the narrative on it. I read last week that at the end of World War II, Allied soldiers would rent theaters and fill the theater seats with former Nazi soldiers. And they did this because the the Nazi soldiers were, were denying the reality that their forces and their power and their regime and their country killed and exterminated six million Jews throughout the war. They denied that the Holocaust took place. And so a a natural response to that would be to to present reality to somebody who's denying reality. And so they played footage taken at Auschwitz, video footage of what took place at a concentration camp, at a death camp. And it didn't work for all of them. Some of them came out of the theater still denying that that had actually happened, even though they had seen it on the screen in front of them. Many of us resist the attack that we believe that guilt is by saying what we've done and what we've thought and what we've harbored in our minds, what we've looked at, isn't sin. And we try to do away and rewrite it. Other times we just plain flee. We just run away from it. If guilt comes in, we head in the other direction. Unfortunately, guilt is a little bit like a shadow, and whichever way that we run, it just sticks with us. It just goes with us. It's right there close. And so what happens is we have this experience of going through life, fleeing from guilt, but knowing it's still there, and it becomes hidden in us somewhere. We deny it, we push it down, but it's still there with us. And what happens is when we do that, when we flee it or when we rewrite it and deny it, when we fight it or flee it, it becomes like a virus and it attacks our faith. And we begin to rewrite the story of our life. We begin to rewrite the story of what God says is good and true and right. And we flee from it, another way of denying it by just squishing it down and not dealing with it. It corrupts our faith because we are trying to write our own story without him in it. We fight, we flee, or we freeze. When we don't deal with the godly guilt that comes from doing something against God's desire for our life, and we freeze, we get paralyzed, we don't move. And that's true in every area of life. We don't actually take a step forward, and so whatever moment that is in our life, we're stuck right there. We don't grow, we don't mature, we don't flourish in the way that God's designed us to. Our relationships get stagnant and begin to die off. Our maturity and our understanding and delight in God hits a ceiling and we don't move forward because we're frozen. Whether we're fighting our guilt, whether we're fleeing our guilt, or we've been frozen by our guilt, those are not the only options. There is another way. And it's this helpful and necessary and biblical word called repentance. And David models it so well in the very next verse. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Uh, Listen to this. He says, against you, he's talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, Uriah and Bathsheba might have something different to say about this. Uriah got dead because of what David did. And so I think Uriah, if if he could hear this song song, would say, no, you you sinned against me too, bro. Like, we've got a problem here. You, You killed me. 
and you slept with my wife, you abused her, now she's pregnant, and she, our lives are done because of what you've done. And so, no, you've sinned against us too, and David is clear about that at the same time elevating it to the place of, I gotta start with God, I can repair with you, Uriah, if I don't get right with God first. And so God, I'm gonna begin with you in a book. You only have I sinned. It doesn't matter if Uriah forgives him if he hasn't done business with God yet. I've done evil in what's in, in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Lots of different ways to hear that and understand it. David is not attacking his mom. He's merely saying, because I am a human being, you created me both good, but I am also flawed because sin has come into the human condition. And so I was not born perfect and I somehow lost it. I was born knowing that I would do something wrong in your eyes at some point, God. He is that humbled, he is that repentant. Repentance means a change of mind. Rather than to deny what we've done against God, rather than to flee it and deny that it's not there, or rather than to freeze and to not deal with it, changing our mind, repenting, is to actually say, God, I'm gonna agree with you. I mentioned this last week, but the word confession in and of itself, the word in, in Greek as we read it in the New Testament, it's broken down into two, two halves. The, the word in, in Greek is homo legeo, and it means same word from logos. Same word, saying the same thing as God, agreeing with what God says about what we've done. That in and of itself is repentance. I'm gonna change my mind to rewriting my story and denying it. I'm gonna change my mind to, to flee away from it. I'm gonna change my mind from just staying where I am and thinking I can't go anywhere else. I'm gonna change my mind, I'm gonna repent and agree with you, God, that what I've done falls so far short of what you called me to. I have sinned. And when we say the same thing of God, the great invitation in that word confession is that we say the same thing of God when it comes to our sin, and we say the same thing as God says about himself. So in our confession, what we have is this link to, this invitation to worship that when we confess, we're also saying the same thing about who God is, that he is great and merciful and powerful and loves us and sees us and is waiting for us to turn back and to be in his presence. And so when we confess, we actually get to be with him in his presence and worship him. It's this beautiful invitation that if we choose to respond to guilt as an attack on our personhood or our human freedom, however we define that, we get stuck and there will not be new life and a hope and a future for us. But when we repent and when we confess, God's inviting us into his presence again and promises new life. Verse six, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You were created good, but you're also human and flawed in that. There's sin there, there's also goodness. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. He's expressing the restoration that happens between us and God when we confess. When we confess and come on our knees and say, God, I've done wrong. Restore me, heal me, cleanse me. You might be saying, I I'm in, I want that. I'm, I'm just not sure where to purchase hyssop. Where can I get a hold of that? Hyssop is not something that we physically need, 
But David was aware of how hyssop was used and what it was far more than I am. What I know is that David is referring back to something that is earlier in the Old Testament, that when God was forming his people to be this distinct and different people that would go through and bump into other cultures and other lands and God would be seen through them, he gave them a very specific way to manage the day-to-day realities of life, which were things like skin disease, and if you can believe it or not, or coming into contact with a dead body. And God actually had, you were gonna be a distinct people and you were gonna function this way. And so when some of you have skin diseases in your community, in your camp, you're to take them outside of the camp for a season so they don't infect anyone else. And if and when they are healed, their entrance back into the community is to take place in a very specific way so that they can come back with the community in the camp and worship me again. And that's where hyssop was involved in. And in Leviticus 14 and in Numbers 19, we have the the process laid out in detail of how a person who has done something wrong that has made them unclean can come back in, rejoin with the community, and be in God's presence. And David is pointing to that and saying, as in dramatic fashion as somebody with leprosy or skin disease or has handled a dead body, is brought back into full participation with God in the community. He is saying, God, that's what I need and that's what I long for and that's what I want. And so would you cleanse me with hyssop? Would you wash me and wash me again and then wash me thoroughly a third time and make me completely clean? Because when you wash me, unlike anyone else washes me, I become whiter than snow. I get a fresh start. Because gosh, God, I'm gonna confess that I've sinned and I'm gonna confess that you are good. And only you, not me, can put me back into right standing with you and renew my life and set me on a trajectory to be in communion with you day in and day out and to be your light and your agent in this world to bring more redemption and more hope. Would you do that in me? And then he goes into this explanation of renewal. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. One of the things that happened is that David slowly, progressively, almost too slowly and smallly to see he moved away from God's presence. For him, it was he got power and a posh palace and wealth and influence and for him all the women that he could ever dream of and those things eventually led him away from being in the presence of God and attuned to the heart of God. For us, it might be those things and it might be other things. But one of the things he prays for because he saw how it was removed from his life by his own doing was a longing and a willing spirit. Another way to say that is an eager spirit to be with God. He lost that. He had an earnestness to be with God and know God's voice and know God's heart and he lost it by these small decisions over the course of time that led him astray. And so he's saying, now God, give me a willing spirit because that's what sustains me. A willing spirit that's eager to meet with you and be with you is what sustains me. And when I'm with you, what it is, it's like this anecdote to temptation, that the things that come into my life that pull me away from you, God, and to the other sources that I believe will give me life that always fail to do so. That being with you and knowing you and hearing your voice and worshiping you and sitting in your presence helps me resist those temptations, and so give me a willing spirit to I'm eager to be with you. He goes on and he goes, moves next to worship. 
And the last few verses of the Psalm 51 are him pouring out his heart and God, you don't desire burnt offerings and all these things, you desire my heart. And so may my heart worship you. And he talks about his voice and his lips singing to God, declaring who God is. When we confess and we agree with God about our sin, we're invited into his presence to be whiter than snow, restored, the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and however many chances we need that when we turn and come back and confess, that God welcomes us back into his presence. And our prayer collectively needs to be, God, give us a willing spirit to long for that and eager for, be eager for that, to be with you and to hear your voice. David's prayer in Psalm 51 is a wonderful invitation and roadmap and model for how we respond when guilt comes into our life, when we do wrong, of the hope and invitation we have in Jesus Christ and him alone. I wanna give you four simple words of how to practice this tonight and tomorrow night, the night after, and then maybe for every night for the rest of your life. It's an easy way to say, how do I confess and restore with God? It actually comes from, it's, it's a, uh, originally from the Jesuits who had developed something called the prayer of examine. Beginning of the day, the end of the day, we're just gonna talk about the end of the day for now, and it's from a, these four words are from a book by Peter Gregg who wrote uh, How to Pray, and it's a prayer app that I've mentioned over the course of the last year or so called Lectio 365. But he says these four words at the end of the day. Uh, replay, go through your day. As you lay your head on your bed at night, as you go for a walk in your neighborhood, as you're winding down your day, whatever it is, as you're driving home, replay the day. Go through the experiences you had of the day. And what will happen is that God will reveal a couple things to you. One of those will be things that you can rejoice about. Gifts and surprises in your day moments that brought joy, moments that you can be grateful for. And so honor those before God and say, God, thank you for those. But thirdly, he'll also reveal things that we need to repent of. I said this, I thought this, I looked at this, I schemed for this, I didn't do this when you called me to act in this way, that we would repent. And then fourth, that we would reboot for the coming day, that we would get ready to do it again. Taking time to, to go through that exercise or that prayer of examine or those four R's will usher us back into God's presence that we'll be invited to spend time with him and to allow him to pour his grace and forgiveness onto us, to sit and hear his voice speak to us and to be invited into the next day as we move forward in his presence. I'm gonna invite you to do this, if you would, with me. Do you close your eyes? The reality of the human condition is that if we don't know the story of Jesus and we don't know that his perfect life lived, his sacrifice of death on the cross, his burial in the tomb, and his resurrection from the dead some, some 2,000 years ago, if we don't know that story and we don't choose to make our story linked to that, if we don't choose to step into that story and accept that, that guilt will become an attack on our lives that we can't fend off, that we can't deal with, that we can't overcome, and we'll remain separated from the God of the universe that is inviting us in to walk with him in this life and on into all of eternity. And so we have this practice of coming to the Lord's table to remind us of that story, his body broken, his blood shed. And so God, we come to you now and we say that we have transgressed, that we have 
iniquity, that we have sin in our life that you have paid for, that you are ready to forgive and extend grace. And so, Holy Spirit, would you convict us? Would we deal with guilt in that most redeeming, restorative way, which is by believing the gospel that Jesus gave his life for us and does so on a regular daily basis and invites us into a a restored and a renewed place with you, God. As we continue to sing, we've got these communion cups that you saw on your way in. If you'd take one and join us to, to rip over the, open the top, I think it helps if you push the tab down and then peel it back. If you don't have one, don't be shy. Walk out in the lobby and grab one. This is a practice. This is a rhythm that Jesus invites us into that's both tangible and tasteable. It's tactile. It invites us into to taste and experience his forgiveness, his hope, and his life again.